Welcome, Bible readers. We are back, and this is the Rooted Podcast. This is week number 11, and this week we'll be covering Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 48, through Joshua chapter 20. I hope you are continuing to read each day and staying faithful each day in reading God's Word. Um, continue to send those questions in as well. Um, I haven't been getting as many questions as I thought maybe coming through this section, but maybe there's more coming soon. Anyway, I just wanted to encourage you to uh, send those questions in, and I will try to answer them as soon as possible. The last small section of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is a prediction about Moses' death. Remember that Moses' sin um, was that it was his sin that prevented him from entering the promised land. However, he was allowed to see the promised land from the top of Mount Nebo. And just as Jacob had blessed each of his sons, so now Moses blesses each of the tribes as we move into chapter 33. And let me just highlight one tribe, the tribe of Naphtali. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 33 says that Naphtali is abound with favor of the Lord and is full of blessing. Naphtali was the son of Rachel's handmaiden named Bilhah. And it is in the regions of Naphtali where the Messiah spent most of his life and exercised much of his ministry there. And I can't think or imagine of a greater evidence of divine favor, like Moses said this tribe will have, than the actual Messiah's ministry being in that specific region. Now as we go into chapter 34, it brings Deuteronomy to a close with the death of Moses. For a final time, God told Moses that he could see the land, but could not inherit it. And Moses' epitaph follows in the final verses of the chapter. Now, Jewish tradition suggests that Joshua pens the words about Moses, a view that has a high degree of certainty to it. And even though Moses was 120 years old, the text tells us that his strength and vitality and stamina were very much still strong. In other words, the text is telling us that he wasn't an old man like we think of an old man in today's terms. Moses was never equaled by any subsequent prophet until the coming of the Messiah. Now at this point you can pat yourself on the back because we've completed the first five books of the Old Testament and we call that the Pentateuch. These first five books contain all the instructions necessary for the Israelites to enjoy intimate relationship with God. In the historical books which we're going to journey into now that begin with Joshua we see how the principles revealed in the Pentateuch worked out or did not work out for Israel in her history. The trust and obedience of the Israelites is what would determine this. So let's move into the book of Joshua. A few things you want to remember as you read through Joshua. First, the period of Joshua covers about 30 years. But the main emphasis of the book is on the conquest of the land, which was the first five to seven years. Secondly, the sovereignty of God over all the nations is clearly seen in this book as God conquers all those nations. Third, Joshua 11.23, if you wanted a key verse, this is it. Joshua 11.23 is a key verse to understanding all that happens uh, in the book. It's like the book of Joshua in a nutshell, Joshua 11.23. And then fourth, you might need to procure a good atlas to help you understand the geography better, as there will be lots of places and names you'll come into contact with here. Now, there's been a lot of names and places and regions we've come into contact with Genesis through Deuteronomy, but now... There's a lot more, especially in the last half of Joshua. You're going to get inundated with names and places, so an atlas might help you considerably. All right, let me add one note as well um, concerning the man Joshua. Philip Keller, who is an author, he said this about Joshua. Joshua has seldom 
been given the full credit he deserves as perhaps the greatest man of faith ever to set foot on the stage of human history. In fact, his entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of simply setting down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. And how true is that for the man Joshua? In simplicity, he simply obeys God each step of the way. Of course he has his faults. Of course he has his failures. Of course he has his mishaps. But the book is full of a man who is just simply doing what God instructed him to do. And to that end, may I say, we all need to be like Joshua, a man who simply obeys what God has told him to do. Now, as we begin reading through Joshua, the first five chapters are about the preparation for the conquest of the land. Now, I know that since the book of Numbers, we've been talking about preparations needed to enter the land. But now in chapters 1 through 5 of Joshua, this long-awaited event happens. In chapter 1 of Joshua, this picks right up where Deuteronomy left off. Moses, the servant of the Lord, dies, and this and his death, no doubt, was an event that may have been depressing for the people. They mourn his death for 30 days, and then God appears to Joshua to give him encouragement to move on into conquering the land, a task that needed encouragement from the Lord. And one of the key principles that Joshua and the people needed to follow was their obedience to God's commands and the law. This would ensure them of God's blessings. They were to meditate on them to plan to follow them to the best of their abilities. And in a similar way as Christians today, as we desire to be successful in this life, our success is always based upon God's Word. Do we meditate on it? Do we obey it to the best of our ability? Is it our sole authority for faith and practice? Because this passage contains the principles necessary for spiritual success in every age. We must know what God requires. We must maintain perpetual awareness of it. And we must be completely obedient to it in our daily lives. Well, friends, the moment of truth has come. Within three days, the people would form up and begin their journey across the Jordan River. Joshua reminds the Transjordan tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, about their responsibility in helping with the conquest of the land. And Joshua's smooth transition into leadership is affirmed by the people's pledge to follow him just as they had followed Moses. And so in chapter 2, we find that as a good military leader, Joshua sends out spies into the area where the people were going to cross over the Jordan. He did this act secretly so as not to cause another Kadesh incident where the people acted in unbelief. It seems he was concerned about the fortification of the city of Jericho. And I think Joshua also learned the lesson that spy reports should be brought to the leaders only. The people didn't have sufficient orientation or experience to properly evaluate such a report. Now, because of the proximity of the tribes of Israel to Jericho, it was necessary that this spy mission be carried out with as little commotion as possible. We're told that the spies stay at the house of a harlot named Rahab. Have you ever wondered why they chose to stay at the place of a harlot? Well, two reasons. First, the house was part of the construction of Jericho's wall, providing easy and a fast escape. And second, strange men at the house of a harlot would not arise much suspicion. But the location of the spies, we're told in the text, were eventually discovered, and Rahab hides the spies. And when later questioned about it, she lies to the men of the city. So the question of Rahab's lie has often led to endless discussions on ethics here. Now let me just say a few things. First, nowhere does the text justify the lie of Rahab. It just simply tells us that she did it. Second, it's possible that growing up as a Canaanite, Rahab didn't view what she had done as inherently evil or morally wrong. 
Third, we often miss the point of the text, and this is the big deal. The point is that Rahab's confession of truth about the Lord in verses 8 through 11, that's what needs to be focused on. Read that confession of faith. Even the New Testament writers don't fall into this trap. In Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2, when they talk about Rahab, they consistently stress the faith of Rahab. And this is the faith of a Canaanite woman who has the praise of Yahweh on her lips. Her confession is what this chapter is all about. The spies give Rahab their promise to spare Rahab and her household when they come again to conquer the land. Now God spared the lives of Rahab and her household because of her faith. Any of Rahab's relatives that would have gathered with her before the Israelite siege of Jericho would have done so because of their faith in God's promise through the spies. If they didn't have any faith, then they wouldn't have stayed, they would have stayed in their own homes, we might say. So the deliverance of Rahab and her family depended on believing a promise from God. You see, salvation always depends upon believing a promise from God. And when the spies return to Joshua, they are excited to tell them that the inhabitants of the land fear us, which is a confirmation to both them and Joshua that God is keeping his promises to his people. In chapter 3, entrance into the land begins with the crossing of the Jordan. God gives specific instructions that the Ark of the Covenant was to lead the people, and this was a visible reminder that God keeps his promises. The crossing of the Jordan was an event parallel to the Red Sea event. When the sandals of the priests carrying the Ark touched the waters, the waters receded, and immediately Israel crossed over on dry ground. The flow of the Jordan was stopped all the way up to the city of Adam. And the text tells us, that's what the text says, and, and that city is some 15 miles north of Jericho. Remember, there are a lot of Israelites that need to cross over the Jordan, and so they need a wide berth to get across. Now in chapter 4, during the crossing, the Israelites were to collect memorial stones. There were two piles of 12 stones in each pile representing the 12 tribes. One pile of stones uh, were to be constructed in the middle of the river, a feat that could only be done with the supernatural help of God holding back the river. A second pile of stones were to be constructed in Gilgal. Two memorials were probably done to signify the miraculous nature of the event and the historical nature of it, the fact that it actually happened. Israel had double proof. Israel had two witnesses of God's faithfulness. And as you move into chapter 5, we find that fear grips the Canaanites, for word has spread of how God has parted the waters for his people. Now, three events happen in this chapter, chapter 5, right before the people actually go into battle. First, the rite of circumcision. Evidently, the practice of circumcision was abandoned during the wilderness journey, and for uh, the taking of the Canaan to be successful, the people under Joshua must be in a right relationship with God. And so all those who had not previously been circumcised now submitted to this rite. Second, Israel celebrates her first Passover, and God stops providing manna for the people as they begin to eat from the produce of the land. And I'm sure that the people were glad to be done with manna, having it for so long in the wilderness. The produce of the land probably tasted so good. Third, in preparation for the conquest in this chapter, Joshua meets the real commander of Israel's army, the Lord himself. Joshua is told to take off his sandals for where he is standing is holy ground. Now, what does that remind you of? If you said Moses in the burning bush, then you are correct. The Lord appeared to Moses to call him to the great responsibility of leading the people out of Egypt. And now the Lord appears to Joshua to call him to the great responsibility of conquering the promised land. As we move into chapter 6, well really chapter 6 through 12 concern the conquering of the land. 
These chapters don't give a detailed version, but give a condensed version of the conquering of the land that would occur in the next five to seven years. Divide and conquer was the strategy of Joshua, making his home base there across the Jordan in Gilgal. And basically there are three campaigns to taking of the land. First is their central campaign, then there's a southern campaign, and then back to the north as the final campaign. So Joshua divides the land, he goes, conquers the central part, he goes to the southern part, conquers that part, then he goes back up north and conquers that part. So you can look at this book, these chapters really, in, in geographical movement as well. So in chapter 6 to 8, central Canaan is the focus of the battle, with Jericho being the first city that Israel takes. And in chapter 6, the battle of Jericho was not won in the conventional way, it was won by doing it God's way. It was indeed an act of faith on Joshua's part to propose such an unusual plan to the seasoned military generals of Israel's army. I mean, think about that. When Joshua rolls out this plan to them, they're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? But they still follow through because they trust his leadership. So basically the people were to march around the wall of the city once each day and seven times on the last day, at which time the wall would collapse, giving them victory. And when the walls fell down, the city was looted. All but the house of Rahab and her family were defeated. So symbolic was Jericho's defeat that a curse was put on the city to anyone who tried to rebuild it. Although other cities suffered defeat and looting, only Jericho, Ai, and Hazor were burned to the ground. Now, while I'm here, let me say a few things about the conquest, specifically about the questions raised about its morality. There are several facts that we must keep in mind when dealing with the issue of what we perceive as the unnecessary killing of people. First, it should be noted that the destruction of the Canaanite cities was based on religious considerations, not political, not military ones, but on religious considerations. Second, the action of take the action of taking uh, the action taken at Jericho and Ai was done on the basis of God's divine command, and thus this involves the very character of God. If we believe that God is holy and without imperfection, it follows that whatever he commands will be just and right. Third, it was really Jehovah who was destroying these cities and their peoples. Israel should merely be regarded as God's instruments of destruction. Fourth, the reason for this command is clearly stated in Scripture. Um, this command was designed to preserve the religious purity of the nation of Israel. The destruction of various Canaanite cities should be regarded as a direct judgment from God because of their iniquity. Remember what it says in Genesis 15, even in Genesis 19. If the Lord thought it necessary to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, it is also appropriate that Jericho should be destroyed because of its iniquity. Fifth, the Lord reserves the right to punish sin wherever it is found. He may act now, he may act then, he may act in the immediate destruction of a city or in the condemnation of a sinner at the final judgment. Honestly, if we think about it, only by the mercy and grace of God, any sinner is permitted to live his life completely. Now, as we move into chapter 7, we find that there are still some issues from Jericho that are, unyet, that are yet unresolved. A man named Achan is discovered for not obeying God's commands, and he took some things from Jericho and hid them in his tent. This is what causes Israel to lose the battle against Ai, which was evidently a rather weaker opponent than Jericho. And Joshua tears his clothes over what happened. He doesn't understand why the great victory at Jericho, but now the miserable defeat against such a smaller opponent. But he doesn't have the whole story. Once Joshua realizes what has happened, he begins to follow the Lord's instructions in dealing with the matter. And it seems like casting of lots was used to determine who was at fault, and the lot, as it goes down from tribe to clan to family, falls to Achan. 
And we are told he saw, he coveted, and then he took. A threefold step of sin, we might call it. According to verse 24, uh, not only Achan, but his whole family was punished for the sin. We might assume from this act that the family had in some way taken part in the wicked deed. From a purely practical point of view, it's doubtful that Achan would have removed this number of objects and kept them concealed without some help from his family. Now, after dealing with the sin, the Israelites go up against Ai a second time in chapter 8, and guess what? This time, they're victorious. And at this point, in verse 30 of chapter 8, Israel had now obtained enough of a foothold in the land to journey north toward Shechem and carry out God's instructions given back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Back in Deuteronomy 27, Moses instructed the people to reaffirm the covenant that God had given them when they get it when they get into the land. And that instruction called for the building of two stone structures, one made of very large whitewashed stones, one on which the words of the law were written, and the other a stone altar for burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now take note of the location of this ceremony. It's at Shechem. This was the first place that God told Abram that he would give him the land of Canaan. So the location is very important. As we move right into chapter 9, we learn about the Gibeonites, who take a different strategy in their attempt to defeat Israel. The Gibeonites sent a delegation to Joshua, and while they lived only miles away, they disguised themselves as men who appeared to live in a foreign land. Now, earlier God had given instruction to make peace with peoples from foreign lands, but not with people that live inside the land. And without seeking divine counsel, Joshua makes a treaty with them. And after learning where they were from, the only thing that Joshua could do was to subject them to servanthood. Israel paid the price for not seeking the mind and will of God at every step of the way. Now, as you move into chapter 20, excuse me, into chapter 10, we enter into the southern campaign of the land, of the conquest of the land. A strong alliance of Amorite rulers decided to invade Gibeon for making peace with Israel, a tactic that would force Israel to come to the aid of its ally. And Joshua and the Israelites were true to their word, and they made an overnight march from Gilgal, arriving just in time to engage the Amorites in battle. And the Lord was with his people as God sent huge hailstones that slew more than Israel did with the sword. Plus, God extended the length of the day by causing the sun to stand still so that Israel had enough time to finish off the enemy. Joshua finds those five kings who had fled from the battle and publicly executes them, impelling their bodies on five posts until sundown. Verses 28 through 39, the text lists seven other victories that follow this battle of this five-king alliance. And then verses 40 to 43 round out chapter 10 as a summary of the conquest of that southern campaign. Now chapter 11 is about the northern campaign. A coalition was formed under Jabin, king of Hazor, to prevent further Israelite expansion. But once again, God promised that he would give them victory. And this coalition was Israel's most formidable enemy. But as God gave the victory, the city of Hazor is burned to the ground. The remaining part of chapter 11 is a general summary of the conquest of the land. Of note is verse 22 of chapter 11, which are the Anakim. And these were the giant clans that Israel had feared when they sent out the spies some 45 years earlier. Now, chapter 12 is a grand listing of the kings that were defeated in the conquest of the land. The first two, Sihon and Og, were defeated under the leadership of Moses on the Transjordan side. And then, under the leadership of Joshua, guess what? 31 kings are defeated inside the Promised Land. And all those kings are listed there in chapter 12. Now, chapters 13 through 21 describe how the land's going to be divided up between the 12 tribes. And as you begin to read chapter 13, you come to the realization that while the people of Israel had defeated all the major threats in the land, there still remained some portions of the land that had not yet been conquered. 
and it seemed that going forward, the tribes themselves would be responsible to conquer and colonize its designated territory. The remainder of chapter 13 speaks about the territories already allotted to Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, land that had already been allotted to them under Moses' leadership. Now, chapter 24 is specific to Caleb and Caleb's inheritance, because Caleb was promised an allotment because of his faithfulness as one of the twelve spies earlier. Caleb's allotment was within the tribe of Judah's territory. He has given was given a specific city named Hebron. Hebron was in the hill country, and it was the same area that he had helped spy on years earlier, the same land that had all the giant clans living in it. What you may not know is that Caleb, at this point in his life, was 85 years old, and he still wanted the same land that struck fear in the hearts of the other ten spies. Now in chapter 15, Judah is the first one to receive consideration for allotment, not only because she was the largest tribe, but also because it was the tribe that had received Jacob's special blessing earlier on. This is the time when you're going to want to get out that atlas to look at the tribal allotments if you want to match up cities and regions as you read through the text. Chapters 16 and 17 detail the allotment to Ephraim and the other half-tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph, and we know that Jacob gave them the second largest blessing after Judah. As you move into chapter 18, you find that in the process of assigning the land, Israel's attention turned to relocating the tabernacle to a more central location in Shiloh. The name of um, this town is significant because of Jacob's prophecy of Shiloh in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The rest of chapter 18 is the allotment given to Benjamin, which would include the city of Jerusalem within its territory. Chapter 19 includes the allotments to Simeon, which was in the territory of Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And the last few chapters, or excuse me, the last few verses of chapter 19 detail the special allotment given to Joshua. Israel's leader was not first in getting his allotment, but he was last in getting his allotment. He received a city called timnath Sarah, which was in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, your reading for this week continues through chapter 20, verse 9, but we will save the discussion of chapter 20 for next week because we're already over our time. That means next week we'll cover Joshua 20 through the majority of the book of Judges. And when we get to the book of Judges, we see how every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We'll talk about that next week, but if you have any questions about your reading for this week, email me, Bible reading at lmb.com lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.